It's a simple assignment. Just deny the petition. My new boss, Mike, said about an hour after sending me the February 27th email. As he talked at me, he stared into his computer and, as usual, never once looked my way, as I'm a 45-year-old non-white female with zany black hair, dark skin, and a penchant for plastic glasses. Say that there's good evidence that it's potentially harmless and we're still researching the matter. Mike is 48, Anglo, Baptist, divorced, and sports a salt and pepper brush cut. I'd been at the EPA since 08. He arrived in September 2017 after a decade running dark ops for the Independent Petroleum Association of America and then doing something scary for Exxon. But we already know that it's dangerous, which is why we were going to ban it, I said, standing in the doorway on the third floor of the South Building and holding the thick chlorpyrifos file that he just handed me. Well, the opposite of what you just said is the position we're taking now. Mike rapped out, still glaring at his screen. So go write that up. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Ixta Maya Murray, law professor and author of The World Doesn't Work That Way, But It Could. In this beautifully written collection of short stories, Murray explores court cases and newspaper headlines of the past few years and includes either snippets or footnotes. So when she imagines writing a letter of recommendation for one of her law students to clerk for a prestigious judge whose clerks have gone on to enormous success, we can read about the lawsuits brought by some of those clerks. Turns out they'd been forced to endure a sexually charged atmosphere and plenty of inappropriate behavior. And it's documented in court cases that are now in the public record. These are important stories, the kind you won't be able to forget because they're based on events that we've all been reading about. Raging California wildfires, women who tolerated sexual abuse until the Me Too movement began, the dismantling of environmental regulations going back 50 years, and the damage that is causing. This is a book for those who can imagine a world in which science takes its place above politics. Hi, Ixta. Thanks for joining me today. Galip, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. So how did you come to write these stories and to publish them in this collection? Well, I began writing uh, the collection when I became fixated on Scott Pruitt, who was the former uh, head of the EPA and just seemed to be running amok and creating a kleptocracy um, at the at the EPA, and I thought I was going to write an entire book on um, a woman working in the in the agency and dealing with the ethical problems of how do you how do you work for the EPA while your boss is dismantling environmental um, regulations, and then that turned out to be a short story um, about that that quandary, and I wound up using it as the, as the seed for an entire collection that revolves around the problem of people trying to do the right thing um, in, in an increasingly impossible political and social situation. Hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Quick question. Does your employer, uh, you're a law professor at a Catholic law school. Yes. Does Loyola have any objection to the sometimes political nature of your writing, especially on issues of importance to them? Um, I'm given freedom to write about uh, the issues that I choose. And in fact, if I were not, I would not be there. Um, mm. But I, I am lucky to, I teach at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, and I'm lucky to work in a gr- with a group of people who are really active in trying to create a, a better world uh, and who are writing controversial and envelope pushing uh, things all the time. And, and we are given liberty to do that by our university. That's wonderful. The first story in your collection is about a Miss USA competition. <laughs> yes. Who, that used to be owned by, um, if I'm not mistaken, by Donald Trump. That's correct. How did but, you research this whole thing in addition to your extremely accomplished resume? Were you, <laughs> were you also a beauty queen on the side? I was, um, I, 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 as a child, I was in several beauty contests, correct, in, in Lakewood, California. And I was the princess of Lakewood, and I was on a float, and that was a pretty exciting thing. But I did not do it as an adult. Um, Still, I shall refer to you as princess. For <laughs> well, in fact, Ixta uh, is sometimes known as Nawa for uh, princess. So that got me beaten up a lot at school. That and the beauty contests and, you know, just... Uh, my amazingness was, <laughs> yeah, so, so I paid for that. I paid for that. Wow. So every one of your stories is a gem. The second one is about gentrification in LA. And yes. I'm wondering, has anyone from Zillow, which has a presence in the story, <laughs> contacted you in a legal way? No, they, they haven't. So uh, the story that you're referring to is uh, t- told from the perspective of um, a guy who's a copywriter, um, uh, he's creating content for Zillow, and he's really existing on the margins and is drawn to uh, Donald Trump because of the promises of um, populism and egalitarianism that he thought uh, were being delivered to him uh, during uh, that campaign. And it's about um, the ferocity of gentrification and uh, how this guy is himself struggling uh, to to make rent um, in today in in the economy as it existed as it existed then before uh, before President uh, Trump became our president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, L.A. is one of those expensive places. Not as bad as other places, but well, the the origins of the story uh, there. So I'm a law professor, as you uh, noted, and the origins of the story uh, come from some of the legal work and the legal academic work that I've done. So I did a project in Boyle Heights where I was interviewing a lot of people from the community and asking them about the effects of gentrification, which um, were, you know, understandably and predictably brutal, people being um, expelled from their homes, uh, people winding up in shelters. And uh, that research wound up, I wound up transmuting it uh, into uh, fiction and from the perspective of the so-called other side of someone uh, who did, was not really um, attracted to liberal, you know, philosophy or, you know, lefty think, thought, lefty thoughts like mine, but um, was feeling excluded. Hmm. In your story about 
Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, you quote current President Donald Trump as saying that they want everything done for them. Right. Uh, wondering what you can tell us about the U.S. government's response to that. Just remind us. So um, in 2017 in September, Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico and immediately took out uh, the power grid. And I did a lot of I did a lot of interviewing, like I did in the previous story. And um, I spoke to nurses who uh, flew to Puerto Rico from uh, New York and California. And uh, I learned about how FEMA failed the people uh, during those during those weeks when they were supposed to be there to do um, uh, recovery work. And the nurses and the occupant, rather the residents, told me that FEMA workers were not did not speak English, that they used uh, Twitter to try to communicate with people, even though the power grid was down and many people in Puerto Rico were too uh, poor, poor to own intelligent devices, that they stayed in San Juan, even though many people in the mountains uh, had been uh, isolated and uh, spent weeks without seeing anyone. So it was that kind of uh, research that led to my story about a nurse who goes to Puerto Rico to try to save people. And it winds up becoming a kind of ambiguous tale about heroism and um, uh, yeah, being a hero and going over to Puerto Rico and watching thin things spin out of control. Mm-hmm. Um. The story Acid Rain, here we're getting to the Scott Pruitt story. It's about right. a woman who works for the EPA during the 17th month, 17 month reign of him, of uh, Pruitt. And she's forced to grapple with deregulation mm-hmm. of an insecticide that killed both of her parents. Right. And this is what I want to mention. Exactly one week ago to the date, uh, today is August 4th, 2020. One week ago on July 28th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held oral arguments mm-hmm. regarding the EPA's failure to ban the neurotoxic pesticide chlorpyrifos about which right. you speak. Yes. Would you address that, please? So um, under the Obama administration, there had been um, uh, a successful uh, move uh, to ban uh, chlorp pyrifos or chlorpyrifos. I actually don't know how, which way you uh, pronounce it. Um, and that was, that was moving forward. That was going to happen. Uh, but when uh, President Trump came into office and Scott Pruitt was installed as the head of the EPA, uh, those plans uh, were shelved and uh, the EPA decided that they needed to do more testing and, and take more time to decide uh, whether or not uh, chlorpyrifos was in fact going to be used on foodstuffs and uh, that we were going to expose farm workers to it. And it was just a, a, a catastrophic uh, decision. Uh, the insecticide has been associated with neural uh, damage in uh, children. It's also been associated with lung cancer. And the, the maximal exposure is, of course, uh, suffered by people who are working directly with the chemical that is spraying it. Um, on small small fruit uh, crops. So I wrote about a person who had lost parents uh, to uh, possibly, you know, you never know about the causation with cancer. I myself had cancer for 15 years. And that was what drew me uh, to um, this subject matter. And, uh, and I'm, I'm Latina and uh, a, a large number of people who are suffering from this, uh, this insecticide are uh, 
Latinx. And so, yeah, so that, that became the nucleus for, for a story. That was breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to emphasize, these are fictional stories, but mm-hmm. they're based on incidents for which you provide documentation, case studies, newspaper clippings, etc. My favorite title of your entire book is draft of a letter of recommendation to the honorable <laughs> Alex Kaczynski, which I guess I'm not going to send now. Yeah. Oh, let's you. talk about, let's talk about, I remember when that happened. Um, I'll always remember it as the judge who, um, he had a list, it had a funny name, but it was about the uh, a list of girls that he and his friends banged in college. Oh, I never saw that list. Um, <laughs> lucky, me, lucky me, I missed out on the list. Right. A, a um, federal judge. And you provide a lot of footnote details about why this jo- judge was never going to be impeached. So could you explain what happened in the end? So um, Alice Kaczynski was a Ninth Circuit uh, uh, Court of Appeals judge uh, here in Pasadena. He was probably one of the most, he was, he was one of the most famous appellate court judges uh, in the nation. He had several times before been mentioned as a possibility for the Supreme Court. And then uh, his uh, world uh, blew apart um, a couple years ago when uh, his clerks began to come forward uh, in the in the in the heat of the Me Too movement and complain uh, that uh, he had sexually harassed them in some case, in some cases, uh, even touched them. And he initially responded by saying, I'm not worried about this. This is not a problem. If any, speaking in the passive voices, if anyone has become upset, I'm sorry to hear about that. And then swiftly afterwards, uh, he resigned. Um, and so I wound up writing a story about a law professor uh, who has to write a letter recommendation um, uh, to uh, Judge, Judge Kaczynski for a, a female student of color of hers uh, who she re- whom she really wants to succeed. And uh, she's caught between these feelings of admiration for an immigrant uh, who um, really, you know, succeeded and has so had so much panache and so much style, and at the same time was committing such base uh, acts of sexual harassment that it just it just you know kind of broke her broke her heart. And that's sort of how I felt. I'd always looked up to Judge Kaczynski. He's in I'm in the Ninth Circuit. And uh, I had clerked on the ninth. I had clerked on the Ninth Circuit uh, for Judge Fernandez, uh, Ferdinand Fernandez, and so I was part of that culture. And uh, so I, I thought that I would uh, try to illuminate that by, you know, the old letter of recommendation, which we always have to write for our students, and which we are privileged to do so. But how would you, how would you try to advance a candidate, a female candidate of color, uh, to Judge Kaczynski? And that was the quandary in which uh, my character found herself. But he didn't he uh, send a lot of his clerks oh, to he, amazing yes. positions, right? And he, he was what is known as a feeder. So he fed to the Supreme Court. And I think he was mm. the most successful uh, feeder judge uh, on the circuit. Right. So you wanted to get a you wanted to get a clerkship with Kaczynski. But but um, when I was coming up, I graduated from law school in 1993. Um, Kaczynski's was the most uh, probably the most um, wantable, uh, desirable uh, clerkship to have. But in the past few years, the rumor had started to get out, as far as I understood, um, that women were starting to be told, don't, don't apply to him because um, all you're going to do is suffer. 
Mm. Did you ever have to, in your work as a professor, did you ever have to write a letter of recommendation to a judge you didn't think highly of? I never did. I never had to do that. Um, And uh, I never wrote, no one asked, ever asked me to specifically write a letter to uh, Judge Kaczynski. So I never was put in that situation. Um, uh, And if, if I had known what people eventually found out, I know I would not have done that. I would not have done so. Still the, uh, the veracity of that story, it it just really seemed like a real law professor writing a letter. You, you got it all down because that's what you do. You know how to do it. Right. You know, I, you know, it's, uh, just the, the feeling that the, the law is getting trashed, that the rule of law uh, and the custom of the law and um, the prestige of the law and, the, and the, the, the power and importance of the law was getting corroded and or had been. And that we were just starting to see uh, uh, the ugliness uh, that could exist within this field that I that I, you know, still do love so much and that I cherish so much. Um, but uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of problems with it, and um, this was one of them. And so that's why mm-hmm. that's why I wrote about it. Mm-hmm. So, in case anybody thinks this is only uh, stories, the stories are only political. Your next story, Abundance, stands out in mm-hmm. that it's about a woman deciding whether to stay, whether or not to stay faithful to her husband. What about this story intrigued you? Well, I was in um, Wyoming where the story is located. And I was at UCross, which is a wonderful residency there that uh, gave me uh, an opportunity to spend a month uh, last uh, June. And I was in the town and I was looking at the families and I was looking at the women. I was sitting in the cafe and I just started to think about uh, a woman um, who might uh, be feeling a little bit lonely or a little bit out of sorts and um, I was also thinking about the racial politics of this area that I was in. I didn't see a lot of people of color. And I was also influenced uh, by uh, the, you know, oil is, is really big there. And uh, I wasn't used to that. And so I became interested in somebody who was working around, uh, who was married to somebody who worked in the oil fields and was starting to feel these desires for um, a Latino man. She's a white woman. And this this pull of the forbidden um, and to do what she wants uh, becomes this seductive theme through the story. And it's a very it's very, very lightly touching on um, uh, the problem of using uh, oils and using uh, other, you know, using fossil fuels in the rise of climate change. And also there there looks to be uh, some sort of health hazard associated uh, with um oil wells in the name of what's known as flare stacking. There's, there, there, are, there, are problem, there are health problems that can be associated with working around that area. And so I, I was combining um, uh, this desire uh, to live life abundantly with the, the idea of trying to live life abundantly that we associate with, um, you know, using all of, all of nature's resources. And uh, that's how the story kind of came together. Mm. Um, let's see. The next one's about a little girl who doesn't understand the struggle her sister's going through. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, wondering what you think, uh, what hope is there for women to make decisions about their bodies in states that are chipping away at Roe versus Wade? 
Well, so the, the story that, that you're uh, talking about is called The Perfect Palomino, and it's about an 18-year-old Latina who is seeking an abortion in Arkansas. And what I was thinking of at the time were there were a host of, of states that were starting to dial back on their uh, abortion, uh, read their, their rights to abortion. Uh, for example, um, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Mississippi, and Ohio uh, had uh, all enacted these draconian uh, anti-choice laws, and several of them had enacted what are known as um, heartbeat bills, which prohibited um, abortion past six weeks. These these laws have now been uh, struck down. Georgia struck down. A uh, federal district court struck down uh, the fe- the uh, the Georgia bill, or rather the Georgia law, two weeks ago. Um, but what I was interested in was the whole idea of the rape exception. So mm-hmm. the jurisdictions that I've just mentioned actually don't have rape and incest uh, exceptions, which has brought them uh, a lot of heat. And people think that that's, that's really terrible, and it, and it is. But then I started to think about jurisdictions that do have rape exceptions and what that means. And so Arkansas has an 18-week uh, barrier, uh, to, so you can get an abortion up to 18 weeks, and after that there is an, an exception for rape, incest, and other medical emergency. And so I have this character... Um, who is tackling with the, with the issue of whether she should lie about being raped so that she can get access to an abortion that she very much needs. And um, I wanted to think about her as an ethical actor where it comes to making this kind of decision. She really, really struggles with it. And thinking about the way her mind is working, and she's having a debate with her mother who wants her to do that. And both of them are coming from, I think, uh, valid ethical positions in a lot of ways. Um, but she ultimately makes a decision that's right for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, you have three stories. Let's discuss mm-hmm. the three stories about the separation of children from parents at the U.S.-Mexico border, which yes. will probably go down in history as one of the most shameful government programs, probably along with... Um, what was done to the Japanese during World War II, probably along with many other horrifying programs. So option three, zero tolerance and hierarchy. And they're all different, all from different perspectives. Right. Right. So I write a story. um, So you just think, how could, I was thinking about who's the person who wrote this protocol? that you would, you would separate families. Like who's that, who's that human being who did that? And what was their thought process? And so I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the culture of lawyers and I'm familiar with the banality of evil. And so I thought about this lawyer who's uh, drafting what is known as option three, which was uh, the option uh, that was executed uh, under uh, DHS to separate these families. And separate children who so children who then would be unaccompanied minors, and then would get sent uh, to these um, these these camps. And uh, this is a guy who just thinks he's thinks he's doing his job. He's you know juggling his family. He's uh, he's being hassled by his boss. He doesn't really know. He's he's in his mid forties. He's having problem with technologies with rather with technology like his iPhone and stuff. And in the midst of all this hubbub, he's writing this this evil uh, rule. 
And uh, he never really comes to terms with what he's doing, but he is starting to, his emotions are starting to burp out in sort of strange ways. And his family doesn't know what's going on. And then I moved to uh, a woman um, who is working at one of these facilities who winds up separating um, a child from her mother. And it's, uh, it's obviously devastating, but she's very hardened against it as she must be in order to maintain her own sense of self. She's also um, of mixed ethnicity. She is part Latina herself. And that was a difficult decision to make. I was really worried about uh, blaming the victim and, you know, having a, having a person separating a, a, a Guatemalan mother from her child, being herself Latina. I was worried about, you know, coming across or, or in fact, blaming the victim. But it struck me that if you cite a detention facility in Clint, uh, Texas as, as it was, that your that white supremacy has a particular problem or a particular effect of um, imposing upon people of color the role sometimes of jailer and of you know uh, of police. Um, that's because Clint, um, the last time I looked, was around eighty percent Latinx. And so you cite this detention facility in a majority brown community and you give um, a good pay, you get a good, good, good wage, you give benefits. Uh, people are going to be drawn uh, to getting that kind of work. And it's, it's absolutely destructive. And so that was the tension that I was dealing with there. And then in the third story, I tell, I tell the tale of the girl who was separated from her mother about 30 years later. And uh, she has anxiety, uh, as, as sometimes people do as a result of uh, these oppressions. And uh, she has these panic attacks and is, but also has a job, you know, and has a husband and has this great life. But she goes through this experience um, where, um, right, she, she was actually in Dilly, uh, Dilly, Texas, and she goes to a restaurant called Dilly's and she just starts having a panic attack. And I've had my share of panic attacks. And so, and I know, and I, I know where those panic attacks come from. So I, I thought I would uh, use some of that personal experience um, to help. <laughs> Uh, think about uh, what the what the long term effects of uh, these policies are. You just you mentioned Chicago in passing mm-hmm. um, that some of the children, a couple of children, are sent to the Heartland Alliance, and I just wanted to point out that it's a wonderful organization here. Oh, okay. They do a lot of amazing work with um, homeless and indigent, and uh, and a friend of ours is their le- current legal counsel, and all they do is try to help. So I I felt bad about them showing up as a place that took one of the children that was sent to Chicago. So this is one of my points, which is you you take uh, these policies and then you impose them. And then who do you think's enacting them? Uh, Mm -hmm. Not people twirling their mustaches, but ordinary people, oftentimes what we would think of as good people. And it Mm -hmm. is absolutely destructive to the, the morality and the ethics of the nation to be placed in these circumstances where they become part of an absolutely illegitimate and destructive regime. And I think so, we need to go deep into that and really think about that. So will we ever be able to make it up to the people who were traumatized? Is there any future for give me your tired, your poor? Yes, okay. there, has to, there has to be. Because there has to be. That's why. Oh, so I was um, overwhelmed. So 
that was so well done. I, I loved how you did the three different perspectives. So let's talk about the Overton window. The Overton window is about education in America. Right. And let us know a little bit about it. And then please tell us your prognosis. Okay. So um, the Overton window is, is a longer story that sets uh, the heart of darkness, Joseph Conrad's heart of darkness in the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's about, uh, it's a dystopian tale, as you might expect, about um, what could happen if the current administration used an emergency rationale to arrogate and consolidate power and uh, continue on uh, it without free elections and so on and so forth and create a tyrannical state. And it's something that we, you know, we're looking around and there are these, let's talk about panic attacks, there are these kind of constant panic attacks that President Trump will not um, you know, abdicate. He will not. He will not step down if he loses the election. Uh, that will never get rid of him. What are we going to do? Um, there were even last week. Uh, there were there were statements made to this effect. And President Trump last week, I believe, also said that we should um, uh, delay the the election. Um, so, with these problems and with these you know fears in mind, I, I created this dystopian tale about um, uh, the merger of prisons and schools. Um, as an, an efficient cost, you know, benefit uh, solution for the problem of crime and illiteracy uh, in the United States, and uh, it just it turns into to a heart of darkness. Um, you know, the heart of darkness by Conrad is a problematic tale. It has um, uh, better minds than mine have critiqued its uh, its racist overtones and uh, its assumptions. Um, but when placed in the Department of Education, uh, we can start to think about what what we mean by a heart of darkness. And I think that we are in it. We are in it right now. Ixta, uh, if you could pull together another book of stories based on legal arguments and newspaper headings, which top three or four disturbing issues of the day would you focus on now? Well, right now, um, my focus is on... Um, the environment, and uh, obviously, I've become in, like everybody else interested in public health. Um, but um, I'm now, right now, working on um, a project uh, revolving around a, a Simi Valley, California, which is itself such a racially um, contested space because it's home of the Rodney King um, trial and verdicts, but it's also the home of. Um, a uh, one-time um, nuclear reactor meltdown, and the area is still contaminated with, there's this area of Simi Valley that's still contaminated with radionuclides. And so that seemed to me to be not only a real-world uh, exigent problem, but also a metaphor for um, all of the issues that we're dealing with right now. Um, mm. Policing, police brutality, um, uh, race and class discrimination. And I'm trying to fold uh, a lot of those problems uh, into into that project. So, if you, what are the top three things? I mean, it's going to it's right now. You know, you're thinking about policing. You're thinking about you know racism. You're also thinking about the response right right now. The response to racism to racism and racist policies in the form of the the Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests has has just been uh, for me so so exciting, so thrilling. Uh, so heartbreaking, and uh, that could—that's—that definitely is something that um, 
would be a great subject for literary mm. work. I usually ask authors, what are, what are you working on now? But instead, since you do so much, I'm going to ask you, which of your many projects <laughs> is closest to your heart these days? Well, um, I think for any writer, what they're working on immediately right, right now is what they love the most because they have to in order to get it done. Um, but this this project um, that you're interviewing me about, I um, I look back on um, with um, anxiety and also um, some satisfaction because I I know I got into it some of the high wire um, uh, feelings that accompany this era, and it's just part of the document of uh, what's been happening in the last. Uh, the last three years, um, that and it needs it needs to be. Uh, we need to focus on it. Yeah, um, we need to to not stop thinking about it. Uh, it. It's easy to become exhausted, particularly since the rise of COVID, and to just shut down. And uh, I hope that this that this book um, helps helps keep that anxiety alive. <laughs> yeah, it did for me. Not that it ever went to sleep. But are you writing something now? Are you working on another? novel, a, a book of short stories? Well, so, um, I, so I'm coming out in February with a book about an artist called Art is Everything. Um, and it's coming up from tri-quarter, tri-quarterly books. And uh, that's a work about a woman who stops, a performance artist who stops making art because of uh, poverty and sexual assault. Um, but winds up becoming an art critic. And it just sounds so grim, um, but it's, you know, it has, it has a lot of humor in it. Um, she, just, she just runs into all this failure, and uh, she somehow is able to work herself out of it. So, is it a novel? It's a novel. It's a novel, and it's, yeah, it's coming out in February. And then, then I I'm just, interested. Yeah, Let I'm me fantastic. know. I will. I absolutely will. I'll send you, I'll send you all Ixta, this has been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much, and best of luck in everything you're working on. Ellie, you've been so gracious and so generous to talk to me. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Ixta Maya Murray, author of The World Doesn't Work That Way, But It Could. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.